Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 81, The Captaincies of Brazil. Last episode, we followed Orellana down the Amazon and looked at his unsuccessful subsequent attempt to colonize the rainforest. This story formed a nice bridge between the area we've been covering recently, Spanish Peru and the northwest of South America, across to the Atlantic coast. Like Orijana, we are going to metaphorically move from west to east, and today we will focus on Brazil. Brazil has been neglected. We've hardly covered it on this podcast. But that's because the Portuguese have hardly paid it any attention, so there wasn't much to cover. In truth, even now there isn't a huge amount to talk about, so we're not about to start a 10-episode series or anything like that. This will be a single episode and then we will have to return to the area later on. It was way back in episode 24 that we last looked at Brazil. In that episode, we covered the story of Alvarez Cabral, who landed at Porto Seguro after making a miscalculation when trying to get to India, and being blown a long way off course. While he may have been there by accident, this did at least allow him to see the land which Portugal claimed through the Treaty of Tordesillas, and to take some sort of concrete action on behalf of the country to say that it was actually theirs. He was only there for ten days, so really, this isn't much better than an abstract agreement on a piece of paper in the Vatican, but apparently it made the Portuguese feel better. We then looked at the two trips made by Gonzalo Coelho. He explored the Atlantic coastline of the continent, so that the Portuguese had some idea of what the land they supposedly owned looked like. A small industry emerged, of Portuguese loggers going over to harvest at Redwood, which Brazil was named after, but this was on a small scale, and Portuguese activity didn't really extend beyond this. It was conducted largely by individuals, by small companies, rather than being a state-backed enterprise. I think a comparison can be made with what we saw going on in Venezuela a few episodes ago. In episode 55, we told the story of Alejo Garcia, a Portuguese sailor who ended up marooned in southern Brazil. Garcia's story is relevant because he was Portuguese and because he spent some time in southern Brazil, but it doesn't really add much to the development of the region. Firstly, he was probably marooned from a Spanish expedition, And secondly, much of his story took place in Paraguay rather than Brazil. He didn't make it back alive to Europe, and his story was only discovered later. So while his adventures there are very exciting, they didn't help the Portuguese, 
or influence the development of Brazil. It's pretty much it for Portugal in the Americas to date. And so the obvious question is why were they so much less interested in the hemisphere than the Spanish? Linked to this is another related question. Why, when they finally did start turning their attention there, was their model of empire so different to that which we saw Spain develop? The answer to the first question is for the most part that they have been so much more successful than Spain elsewhere. The two Iberian nations had wanted to find the source of the valuable spices, which they, along with the rest of Europe, had to pay so much for, as they had to be traded the length of Asia, and various powers such as the Ottoman Empire were able to create choke points to the trade and monopolize their spread into Europe. Everyone knew that the spices came from far to the east, and while Spain had experimented with trying to find a western route there, Portugal had focused on the more obvious route, actually going east, even though this first involved going a long way south around the bottom of Africa. Unlike Spain, they had actually reached the Spice Islands. It's difficult to pull together an exhaustive list because their colonies were constantly changing hands, being established, recaptured or abandoned, and because the lines between these former colonies and trading posts can be blurry. But, by 1530, they had seized control of Goa and Mumbai in India, Malacca in Malaysia, Hormuz in Iran, and parts of Indonesia. Here they'd gained a foothold in Ternate, one of the most important of the Spice Islands. They had also established a presence and or trading relationship, often by force, among existing states in Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Bahrain, Yemen, Qatar, Oman, Timor, and other parts of Iran and Indonesia. On the route there, that is in Africa, they had a presence in parts of Morocco, Ghana, Madagascar, Mauritius, Kenya, Mozambique, Mauritania, Tanzania, the Maldives, and the Lakadiv Islands, which now belong to India. These were usually small fortified towns, rather than vast tracts of land. But it gives a sense of how widespread their activity was. In addition to these, they had taken control of various island groups in the Atlantic, which they could use to resupply on their way to Asia. These were Madeira, the Azores, Cape Verde, and Sao Tome y Principe. All of this was to say that they were doing pretty well elsewhere, and so it made sense that their focus was to the east and not the west. On top of this, and despite the rapid growth in wealth and power which these colonies were bringing them, they were still a small nation. They didn't have all the other European possessions, unlike Spain, so they had to use their resources wisely. They were stretched as it was, so they had to prioritise, and they chose to prioritise Asia and Africa. Although they hadn't looked particularly hard, another reason for neglecting Brazil was that so far it didn't appear to have the same potential as elsewhere. They would have been keeping a close eye on Spain's success in Mexico and Peru, but this was built on the precious metals which had been found there, as well as the large, complex empires with their big populations. So far, there didn't appear to be anything like that in their part of the Americas. That attention the Portuguese were paying to Spain extended to making sure that they didn't encroach beyond the Spanish side of the Tordesillas line, and Orellana aside, so far they hadn't. 
That didn't mean that other European nations weren't beginning to look on with envy, however. It was the French who were causing the most trouble. Small companies of Frenchmen had begun to copy their Portuguese counterparts and set up Brazil wood logging camps. On such a vast coastline, it was extremely easy to find a spot where you could begin logging unnoticed. The French state itself was also sniffing around, and although it was not doing anything too provocative, like building its own colonies, it was showing an interest. They had begun to build alliances with some of the indigenous peoples on Brazil's coast, and this unnerved the Portuguese. What were their intentions? Were they hoping to inspire the indigenous peoples to drive the Portuguese out? The Portuguese decided that some action needed to be taken, and so they sent a man named Martim Afonso de Souza to demarcate the extent of their territory. While they were at it, they thought they would do some cheeky encroaching of their own, and they instructed him to sail as far down as the river plate and to include it in their territory. This was well to the west of what was supposed to be theirs, according to the Treaty of Tordesillas. This came back to bite them, and de Souza found himself shipwrecked down there. There was little information that can be found easily on this part of the trip, but somehow he ended up in the area where the city of Santos is today, and where Sao Paulo sits directly inland from. Here he founded a settlement, and he named it Sao Vicente. There had been a slaving presence there, but this was the first real permanent Portuguese town in the Americas. With that done, he went inland and founded another, Santo André. Today it forms part of Sao Paulo, so this can be considered as the beginning of that city's history. Although it will be a while before anything happens there on any real scale, this does make it a significant moment in Brazil's history. Another significant action which de Souza took was to found a sugar mill back down in Sao Vicente with some sugarcane plants he'd brought over from the Cape Verde Islands. Again, it would take a long time for the results of this to really be seen, but this was the beginning of a phenomenon which will greatly influence the direction of Brazil and of the Americas as a whole. At some point I'll probably do an episode on sugar. For now though, it's enough to say that it will become one of the major cash crops for all the empires which the European powers established. It will enrich the home countries, greatly stimulate the African slave trade and the subsequent ethnic makeup of Latin America. And along with a few other cash crops, it will establish economic and land use patterns, the plantation in particular, which will define the region's history. De Salsa then turned his attention to the land further north. He was made the first governor of Brazil and this was a big step in formalising Portuguese administration. Further illustrating Portuguese priorities, it wasn't long before de Sousa was called away and made governor of India. Although he hadn't been there for very long, and hadn't done that much in the scheme of things, he had laid the groundwork for the next stage of Brazil's history. So now we know why the Portuguese were so slow compared to Spain, to give their attention to the Americas. How did this affect the shape of their colonies when they finally did start building them? Spain had commissioned conquistadors to go out and conquer territory, and then it had created viceroyalties out of these lands 
and converted those conquistadors into governors. This was a modified version of the way in which Spain itself had been reconquered not long before. Portugal looked to a different part of Iberian history when it began to properly govern Brazil, the medieval feudal system of land ownership. It would be impossible to give a short but comprehensive overview of this system, but to simplify things immensely, generally all land within a European country belonged to the king, who then gifted it to dukes, counts and barons to manage it. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One of the key rights of these land titles were that they were inheritable by the children of their holders. And so this differed from the way in which the Spanish king appointed his viceroys. Because of their eastern focus and their lack of resources, the Portuguese king decided to use this system in Brazil. It had already been modified and used successfully in Madeira and the Azores, so it seemed like the obvious thing to do here. The land on the Portuguese side of the Tordesillas line was divided into 15 units, and these were named captaincies. They ran from east to west, each one extending up to the line its other end, including a section of the coast. They were then given to prominent noblemen, who were called the Donitarios. Many of them had personal connections to the king and his government. With this all sorted out, the king believed that he could now leave the governing of Brazil to his Donitarios and focus on other things. In reality, however, it didn't work out like that. The system was an almost total failure, if you were a nobleman, given a county in recently reconquered southern Portugal, you have a population, established cities, and farmland already in existence. There was none of this in Brazil. The indigenous peoples they encountered lived in a completely different way, and so a huge amount of effort and money would be required to build a Portuguese-style economy. Four of the fifteen donatarios did not have the resources required to make use of their land so they never did anything with them at all. Those indigenous people understandably resisted the incursions of these outsiders, and when they weren't attacking newly founded settlements, they died in large numbers from disease. This meant that more Europeans were needed to actually work the land the Donatarios were trying to make economically productive. Of course, many Europeans died of unknown tropical diseases as well. Four more of the Donatarios were killed in battles with the indigenous people. Most of the rest simply failed to overcome the difficulties and make their land governable. Every time a captaincy failed, or if its owner died without an heir to inherit it, it reverted back to the king, and he found himself at square one, responsible for its management again, and looking for somebody new to give it to. The main legacy which the captaincies left behind was in the settlements which the Donatarios built as their capitals. While they were largely unsuccessful at the time, places like Salvador, Espiritu Santo and Ilius are still important cities today. 
The failure of most of the captaincies meant that success can be measured by simply continuing to exist. Four of them could be called successes. They were Salvisenshi, a place which de Sousa had founded, Ilius and Porto Seguro in today's Bahia, as well as Pernambuco. If you want to use a more stringent definition of success, only Pernambuco and Salvisenshi could be said to meet it in any real way. Pernambuco was the exception to the captaincy model. It was the only one which actually did really well. The first Donatario was a man named Duerci Coelho, and he seems to have been pretty capable. He had already made a fortune in Southeast Asia, and had participated in the conquest of Malacca. While there, he had married into the rich and powerful Albuquerque family. A relative of his wife was the Duke of Goa. Alongside his ability, it was this pre-existing wealth which allowed him to make a success of Pernambuco. After his time in Asia, he was put in charge of defending Portuguese possessions in West Africa, and after this, he moved to Brazil. One of the indigenous groups who had allied with the French, the Caiche, were within his captaincy, and they had been resisting the Portuguese. He managed to defeat them, and so he was able to found the city of Olinda on what had been their land. He saw the potential in de Sousa's fledgling sugar industry down in Salvicenshi, and he invested in plantations and sugar mills. He also began planting cotton, and these two crops, combined with the Brazil wood, started bringing in money for himself and the crown. Because it was doing so well, Pernambuco was the only captaincy which continued to exist once the system had been abolished. That abolishing happened in 1549, when the king ordered that Brazil should be taken back under royal control. Much of it was already back under his control, because so many captaincies had failed. The system had been in place for just 15 years. The failure of the captaincies was obviously the main reason for doing this, but perhaps the reason he chose that moment to act was because a few years beforehand, Orijana had arrived back in Europe and was preparing his attempt to establish his new viceroyalty. The French still weren't going away either, and because the Donatarios didn't even have the resources to establish their colonies, they certainly weren't able to defend them. The king decided to copy the Spanish model, and he united Brazil into one colony. Then he appointed a governor-general to run it. This position was the equivalent of the Spanish viceroy. The boundaries of the captaincies were redrawn, so that they made more sense when mapped out onto the geography on the ground. They were no longer separated by arbitrary straight lines. The first of the governor-generals was a man named Tomé de Sousa. He purchased the city of Salvador from its Donatario, and made it the new capital of Brazil. He chose it partly because it was an easily defensible settlement, and partly because it was located between the two most successful centres, Pernambuco and Salvicenshi. Tomé de Sousa governed for four years before returning to Portugal, but he would be the first in a long line to hold the governor-general position. Before finishing this episode, it's worth quickly looking at three types of colonists who will help to define the captaincies as well as the early governorship periods of Brazilian history. The first were the Jesuit monks, who Tomé de Sousa brought with him. They were quickly spread out across Brazil, 
and make it their mission to convert the indigenous peoples to Christianity. Their leader was close to de Salsa, and the monks helped him govern effectively while the administration was still being set up. His vision for the future of the indigenous peoples differed from that of most of the colonists, and this created a tension which will continue for a long time. He wanted to destroy the traditional forms of the indigenous societies he encountered, and to convert them into Christian subjects. He did, however, oppose the practice of enslavement and the massacres which were sometimes being carried out by the settlers. He worried that the second of the three types of colonists we need to talk about were providing a bad example to his converts about what a good Christian should be. Many of these colonists were made up of criminals who had been sent to populate Brazil as part of their punishment. They were known as degradados, and if they followed out the terms of their sentence by establishing plantations, logging camps and villages, basically carrying out the actual work of building a colony, they would be rewarded with a pardon. Some did this, but others didn't. There was little supervision, so some thought they would be better off banding together and getting as much out of their new surroundings as they could. Often this meant slaving, founding their own outlaw societies in the interior, or trying to pass themselves off with new, non-criminal identities. Some of the degradados decided to abandon Portuguese society completely, and to live among the indigenous people. They, along with some of the early loggers, and shipwrecked sailors who, lacking any alternative, had done the same thing, formed the third important type of colonist. While few in number, their knowledge of the land and its people were invaluable to the Portuguese. As well as providing information, they acted as intermediaries when relations turned hostile with the indigenous people, and they used personal relationships they had built with caciques, as well as knowledge of the languages. There are two particularly well-known examples. João Romalho arrived in the area where São Vicente was founded, all the way back around 1510 to 1515. How he got there is unknown, but by the time the colony was being set up, he had married the daughter of a local cacique and helped that cacique trade with groups of passing Europeans. When Martim Afonso de Souza arrived, it was Romalho who showed him up into the hills and helped him found Santo André. In 1562, another group of indigenous people attacked the settlement, and Romalho enlisted his father-in-law's people to help successfully defend it. The other example was a man named Caramul. Although he was Portuguese, he had probably come to Brazil aboard one of those rogue French ships, and when it sank near Salvador around 1510, he had been washed ashore. The Tupinamba took him in and gave him the name Caramul. He too married an indigenous woman and assisted the Portuguese colonists. It was thanks to his help that Tomé de Salsa was able to make Salvador his capital without it being attacked by the Tupinamba. This is where we will leave Brazil, but it won't be too long before we return. While it is in a much more established position than it had been at the beginning of this episode, the colony still faced many challenges, and it was definitely still in its infancy. What's more, the French had not stopped showing interest in the area, and soon they would be making an organised attempt to stake a claim to Brazil. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. 
For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M A X S E R J E A N T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.